This is an ABC podcast. Robert Tickner is a recovering politician. Back in 1993, Robert Tickner was the Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs in the Keating government, trying to carry native title legislation through the parliament. It was an unbelievably complex and fraught business. But while all that was going on, there was something quietly massive happening in Robert Tickner's private life that wasn't public knowledge at the time. Robert Tickner had made contact with his mother, his birth mother. He'd always known he'd been adopted, and the mum and dad that brought him up were really and truly the loveliest people. And he'd come to think that people were much more than the product of their upbringing, rather than their genes. That people are more a case of nurture rather than nature. But when Robert had children of his own, he started to rethink all that. And when he did make contact with his birth mother, Maida, they realised they had been closer than they could ever have imagined. I spoke with Robert Tickner last year. Hello, Robert. Hello, Richard. Tell me about Bert and Gwen, the lovely couple that, that adopted you and brought you up. Paint me a picture of them, please. Well, I think I you know, was exceptionally privileged um, to have been adopted to such wonderful people. And this story for me, of course, is intensely emotional. And it's, uh, But my mum and dad were just beautiful people. Um, they couldn't have children of their own and they sought to adopt. And um, I happened to be the one that uh, ended up with them. And they always told me that, you know, I was chosen by them, not in any uh, biblical or privileged sense, but... Uh, <laughs> you were like Mo- Moses and the bulrushes, no, no, were you? <laughs> no, no, not at all. The exact opposite. You know, they were very modest people and, uh, you know, did not believe in uh, any elitism of any kind. But they sought to send a message to me that I was loved and that they wanted me in their life. And I grew up the most idyllic childhood in Foster, the north coast of New South Wales. I lived five doors away from my primary school, a five-minute ride to my high school. My local Pebbly Beach was, you know, three blocks away. It was just a town where I often went, you know, without shoes, rode my push bike everywhere, had a fantastic cattle kelpie called Tim um, who formed a large part of my life. And mum and dad just were, were terrific parents. Not They didn't shower me with privilege or, um, you know, uh, possessions, but they were just really good, wonderful, model people. My dad was uh, very involved in the local community in so many ways. How, how old were they when they adopted They you? would have been in their early 40s. I always grew up um, knowing I was adopted, being perfectly comfortable with that, you know, almost kind of proud of it in a way, I suppose. But And when you look at the childhood photos mm. from the time mm. of you and them, what, 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 do you, what do you see? Well, I see the love emanating from my mother, Gwen. Um, you know, my dad and I, you know, had a lot to do with each other. He taught the local swimming squad in Foster at the ocean pool, even though we couldn't swim a stroke himself. Um, he established the Sunliner Caravan manufacturing business. Sun- he established the Sunliner Indeed. Caravan manufacturing business up there. He did. Would you care to sing the, would you, would you care to sing the praises of the old Sunliner Caravans well, of the I, 1960s? Listen, I certainly would. You know, they were virtually indestructible, you know, fully moulded fibreglass caravans. Uh, I went back to um, Foster Tunkari a year or so ago 
to celebrate the 60th anniversary and I felt just so privileged and so amazed <laughs> that there were these caravans still there in very large numbers. But with my father's reproduced signature on the side, he was viewed as kind of a legend and they were very pleased to have me there as Bert Tickner's son. You know, he so, would have just been over the moon because he was such a modest man. So, so he manufactured uh, part of the caravan or some of the caravan. This meant he actually, <laughs> for you, he manufactured a fibro pool, a pool, a swimming pool for you to swim in. Is that well, right? It wasn't for me, but was this again? So the, the caravans were fully built in, in Foster, shipped from there. Uh, it operated for seven or eight years, sent vans all around Australia, about 600 built. You can imagine in those days, uh, transport links weren't what they were. Getting materials there was difficult. But, you know, the caravans, you know, really are an Australian icon. Um, and your dad was part of that. Your he, dad was He was, and he built the pool, not for me, but for the community because he wanted to teach the swim squad in the winter. So he had all these amazing entrepreneurial contraptions to try and clean the pool long before pool cleaners, as we know now, were ever invented. He had a formal, you know, an old washing machine uh, moving in some kind of a weird contraption like right. way so, on the so edge So he was a guy pool. who could kind of manufacture and repair anything pretty much. He was. Result, that and kind he, of guy. And, well, for, and for he had a son, namely me, who's never had a shed <laughs> in his life and uh, is an abject failure at all things like that. So you grew up in this lovely place in, yes. uh, in, in Foster, right on the coast there, uh, indoor or outdoor Dunny in those days, was it? Well, very much an outdoor dunny, and I played a great trick on my dad. What was that? Well, you know, as a little boy, I was about six, and I worked out you could turn the key on the outside of the door, put the key on the outside of the door, and do it very quietly, and I stealthily did that, and unfortunately I forgot headed off to school. So, hang on, you locked your, your dad yeah. in the outdoor, in the I outhouse. Did. You locked him in and I then did. you forgot you'd locked him in there. I did. And I went off to school and my mother <laughs> hears this amazing, destructive, enraged commotion out the back of the house and my father's uh, trying to break free from his uh, incarceration. I've inflicted upon him. He's extremely unpleasant incarceration, I, I imagine. Well, I mean, I had, of course I had that in mind. Right. It might cause a little degree of, uh, you know, amusement to lock him in there with a the smell, but right. I didn't mean to forget him. How did he get out? <laughs> he destroyed the toilet. He ran to literally because no one could hear him. Did so, you get? Did you get a hiding for that? No. He but he did give me a wry smile. He didn't talk about it much <laughs> for some years. But when I eventually told the story, I could manage to bring a smile to him. So I think you know he got it. You were an only child, obviously. With it, obviously you you receive all that attention, love, and focus, which is wonderful. Were the downsides to that? Though, do you think? Um, look. I, I don't consider that I was privileged in, in that way so much. I mean, my, my mum and dad were very involved in all things in the community. They were life members of the local golf club. As I said, dad taught, you know, the swimming squad in Foster for a very long time, carted kids, including me, off to country swimming championships. Up so you're around with a lot of kids in that way. Oh, but, absolutely. But, so, but, but do you, I don't know, is there, is there a kind of a narrowness that you get from being the only kid? Well, think? I've... I've read books, uh, you know, around life as an only uh, child, and I have to be honest and say that I felt very comfortable um, in my life. I didn't really think about it. I mixed well with kids around me. So, you know, and the thought of ever having brothers or sisters never entered my mind. Your parents wanted you to go to a, send you to a private school in Sydney, but you resisted. Why? What oh, I did, because I was a country kid, and I, I still can't help thinking of myself like that. I mean, I think uh, country people, country kids, you know, grow up 
pretty egalitarian, you know, attending kind of local schools, pretty involved in your own local community. Everybody knows everybody in a small town. And the last thing I wanted was to be shipped off to Sydney. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I was pretty strong in my views. And mum and dad listened to that. And, of course, I went to my local foster high school for the first four years and then the last two years in Taree, part of that on, on an old red school bus. But uh, it was in a great the, life. In the end, you went to do law at Sydney Uni and mm. you were living in one of the colleges there. You found that an alienating experience, didn't you? Look, I did. And, um, you know, it's a long time ago and the world's moved on in so many ways. But I lived in St Paul's College and as a um, person from the country who spoke to everybody and lived in very egalitarian way and respected everyone and a state school kid, I found it very hard to make friends. You right, know. There, were, there was snobbery? There was a lot of elitism and snobbery and, you know, it was very, very difficult, you know, because you start university, you want to meet people and, um, you know, I, uh, I remember that uh, Gough Whitlam, who was also in that college, went back to the college in 1973 and he delivered this speech and I happened to be there for it, and he said to the assembled multitudes, you know, your fathers help shape my political views, and the way he would do it in much more authentic goff, and I thought to myself, you know what, their sons help shape mine, <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I, although I did join the Sydney University Liberal Club, because my mum and dad were quite conservative. So you, you did join the Libs for a bit, right? Not the Liberal Party. The I Student Liberal the, Club, the right. The Student Club. But I really, you know, I found that, um, um, you know, it, it just wasn't my natural home. And, 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 and strangely enough, uh, Malcolm Fraser, who I went on to admire so much in later life, um, was the person who kind of finally tipped the balance, you know, that I really thought when he was Minister for Education back, uh, you know, in the uh, early 70s, that he embodied at that time, I thought, in my head, a lot of the things I was seeing in that college and, and that wasn't what I wanted and what I believed in. I believed in, you know, us tackling as a nation um, the inequalities in education and giving every child an opportunity to grow and to learn and to prosper. There's, there's a moment in a young man's life when he conceives of himself as being completely bulletproof. Hmm. And then there's the day that comes when you realise you're actually, you've got this uh, horribly vulnerable eggshell sort of body. What was the incident that shifted you from that bulletproof moment to realising just how vulnerable you were, Robert? Well, I used to go back to Foster, you know, every weekend. I was a homesick country kid and, you know, my girlfriend was there. And um, I just thought, you know, I was invincible. I was the son of a car dealer. My dad ran the local Volkswagen Nissan distributorship in Taree and uh, I was driving a very fast, you know, Nissan, it was called Datsun 1600 back in those days. The old Datsun 1600, And, right. you know, they, I was testosterone-driven, self, overly self-confident, foolish, extremely foolish young man, and I rolled a car around Curry, uh, Curry Curry, and rolled over five, six times, hit the edge of a bridge, went over the edge of a bridge, and my friend Peter Riddell and I uh, managed to escape unscathed. But, you know, you raise the issue of the turning point. That was a turning point in my life because I realised that what was important in my life were the people I loved, my family, my friends, and that the pursuit of money um, as a life objective and material possessions 
wasn't what I was going to be about. And, and I distinctly remember that transformation that that near-death experience gave me. You joined the ALP mm-hmm. and your, your dad was quite conservative and a strong National Party man or Country Party man as they were as it was he back did. in the day. Mm-hmm. How did he feel about you uh, huh. joining uh, the dreaded ALP? Well, you know, when I would sometimes fly back from Sydney, we'd load up the, the bags from the, you know, the plane into the car at Tari Airport. I remember that between loading the bags and getting to the perimeter fence of the airport, so often my father and I would erupt into this incredible political discussion. And, um, you know, he was a person very different to me, um, but essentially he was a business person and essentially thought, you know, he made his life and other people had to do the same thing. And um, you still, know. you're a serious, quite a serious young man. You're involved oh, yeah. in social justice causes. In, I uh, was, uh, and and you're a, you've done a law degree and and all those things. Was he sort of was he proud of that? And was he proud of the fact that you were you were quite a, a serious and dedicated young man? Oh, of course he was. And mm. you know, I formed a beautiful relationship with my dad <clears throat> before he passed away. He developed a tobacco related uh, cancer and. Uh, eventually, um, you know, uh, passed away due to that. But that was also important for him because it, it mellowed him. And, you know, we were able to, to really hug and t- to kiss, um, you know, particularly the time when, when he was dying. And, uh, you know, I think that for those of us who grew up in that era as young men in Australia, and particularly me, I think, as an only child, not having the brothers and sisters, I didn't really mellow and and really learn how to how to love and hug as generously as I subsequently learned through my father's illness and his own mellowing and when I started to share houses with people um, that was reinforced in my life you've been doing work with the Aboriginal legal service in inner city Sydney at, at the time and and you're right that your dad had a bit of um he did have anti-aboriginal prejudice in him at the time and you loved him you love your dad of course you do mm. and 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 he's done all these things for you i think a lot of people wonder how deal with that when you've got someone you really truly dearly love and that's never going to change because mm. that's just how <clears throat> it has to be and they have this kind of side to them themselves that is um, somewhat, I don't know, I, I suppose that might seem to you to be politically obnoxious. What, how do you sort that out in your mind? Well, I think when you're 22, 23, you fight with them. <laughs> That's just it. You fight with them. <laughs> and uh, oh, I'm only you know, kidding to that extent, but obviously it was a source of enormous tension, you know. I mean, I uh, here he was in the National Party and the, you know, very conservative on so many issues and had views I strongly disagreed with around Indigenous Australians. You know, we, we did have strong disagreements. But, you know, my dad mellowed <clears throat> when he developed his brain tumour. He was in... Um, Sydney Hospital, and Mum and I were with Dad. He was in a dreadful state. His mind was slightly addled, but he was still very loving. And he saw this young Aboriginal orderly come towards him to give him a shave because he'd lost the use of his hands. And Mum and I looked at each other and we thought, "Oh, this is going to be here we go. This is going to be very yeah. difficult." And my dad just astounded us. He just pointed to this young man who was coming to give him the shave and. He looked at him, he said, oh, Rob's mate, Rob's mate. And he gave this really wry smile, welcomed this young man to uh, give him the shave. And it wasn't the man from Ironbark outcome that uh, he predicted. It was just a beautiful moment when I think 
I saw my father recognise that we were all part of the human family. It was in this very distressing medical situation he was in, this personal recognition that, hey, you know, I was wrong. Where were you when you were told about his death? Um, I was going into a vote in the House of Representatives and um, as a backbench member, I always had great relations with the Parliament House staff and they managed to track me down literally as the bells were ringing in the old Parliament House. So you're getting the call as, or you're being told as the bells are ringing for a division? Yeah, I was walking to the to the chamber and they managed to track me down the from the switchboard, my, my buddies, oh. and they my mum was on the phone. They told me my dad had died. And, of course, she was distressed, I was distressed, and my colleagues, you know, in the in the parliament were saying, you know, there's a boat on, come on, you know, come on, Robert, you've got to move, bells are ringing, and, and I said, Mum, I've got to go. And you can imagine, you know, um, the, the distress, but in the parliament, the most beautiful thing happened, and... Uh, it was in the old Parliament House and I saw the the whip Ben Humphreys going around the front bench saying, you know, to the ministers in the front bench, Tickner's father just died, Tickner's father just died. And even though it was noisy, I could hear this almost eerie sense of, of what was being said way down in front of me. And Bob Hawke, who I wasn't particularly close to, you know, at that time, um, in a most beautiful way, left the front of the chamber and the dispatch box and came up and put his arm around me. And um, I can't tell you what that was like. Um, it was just the most um, wonderful, spontaneous act of generosity and uh, enormous comfort. And, you know, and it taught me a big life lesson. That's never be afraid to, um, to show your love. You were, you were 40 when you had your first kid. Mm. <laughs> and that's always another, that's a, that's a gigantic earthquake, having your first kid. Sure is. And, and what did you, was this the incident that got you thinking about, you know, what makes us really? Is, is it, you know, is it nature or nurture? Is that, is that mm. what got you thinking about that? Well, I should say, to paint the picture clearly, that when I married my then wife, Jodie, I became the instant father of Jade. Um, who was six at that stage, and she became my daughter. But Jack was born in 1992, and yes, it was an extraordinary moment. I mean, I had thought all my life, and maybe naively, you know, people can judge me harshly if they like, but, but I, you know, I didn't have the experience of having biological family, and they looked down on this little boy after he was born. And so, so the first person you know of that's, you've got a, that you've got a genetic connection to yeah, that you know of. yeah. And, and you know, it just knocked me for six. And it is the case with many people who've been adopted that having a child can be a trigger for lifting the contact veto. And, and um, But it was. My son Jack's birth caused me within three months to take the steps to seek out my birth mother. You said there was... A you said there was a contact veto. What, what, what is that? And what, what, and what do you... Well, the process that's been put in place, I think, in all, if not most Australian states, is a system whereby 
uh, adopted people and relinquishing parents can seek to meet each other through what I might call a kind of blind contact system in that you can't contact directly but you register your interest and when that interest is registered, contact's made with the other party and then there's a kind of a link-up arrangement whereby a departmental person will put you in contact. But you can put something in place that says... Correct. No, I, I don't desire any contact. And, and that's the contact put, veto. And I had a contact veto because I was so loyal to my mum and dad I grew up with that, you know, I, I just didn't want to risk anything to hurt them. And I, to be honest, you know, that was my absolute focus. But I was to learn that there were, there's a whole other world out there that I really needed to know about. So then you decided to lift the contact veto. Mm-hmm. And once you'd done that, do they tell you if the other party has been trying to make contacts? Yes, they do. In my case, my mother hadn't been, but she'd left a note Uh, Essentially, it was a very brief note, but it made clear that she wanted, she wasn't stopping contact, but she wanted to have it controlled because any immediate intrusion into her life, you know, would have been disastrous for her as I came to realise. So so once you began this process of lifting the contact feet, that's one thing, but then wanting to make contact is another. Mm. So... At the time, you were a federal government minister, weren't you? Yes. That was, <laughs> was that a little, did you feel very conspicuous beginning this I process? Did. You're dealing with a government bureaucracy. Uh, yeah, at, of course at I the did. Time. But a couple of quick things, Richard. In your introduction, you talked about the native title legislation. Well, of course, the Prime Minister, Paul Keating, was, was leading this uh, process. Um, but for me, it was, you know, an immense, probably the most, challenging part of my life as I think it was for his. Yeah, it was a gigantic and historic and, effort and, and the, whole, the whole department was behind. Was, well, the, was, yeah. and the public debate mm. in this country was like a war zone, you know, people forget how brutal and awful it was. But so when I was making this initial contact, it was pretty much as this, you know, public debate was, was launching and, and turning very ugly and very bitter. And yes, I did feel very vulnerable. Um, but you know, this was an irre- irre- irrepressible need on my part once I, you know, had thought about it to, to reach out and try and find my birth family. What did the department advise you about this process, about the nature of how this process works, of reaching out to you, your birth mother? Well, there's a caseworker that I was allocated... And this is also uh, something that's very emotional. You know, she was an outstanding human being, um, um, and I think others working with her were were doing a similar job. I, I call it a public service delivered with love. I mean, oh, was that, the, it was like that. that level of professionalism, care, and commitment was outstanding. I didn't need it. My life was fine. I'd grown up, you know, very very lucky young man. I was a federal minister. You know, I was in the prime of my life. But when I gradually began to hear from my my caseworker, when, well, Sandra, um, that my mother had suffered so grievously, her whole life had been shaped by the relinquishment of me as a child and she was fragile beyond belief. And therefore, I had to place myself in... Uh, Sandra's hands every step of the way to get this process right. So what did the department tell you once they told you they'd located your your birth certificate, which was the key step here, isn't it? Uh, Well, they managed to get this to me the only time, because I was, the day I got it, you know, I'd flown from uh, Cape York 
um, from the Torres Strait where I'd been working to Melbourne for a major commitment at Healesville. I'd gone back to Canberra. I'd picked up my car in Canberra. Um, I'd gone to Stanwell Park, then finally to pick up my birth certificate at Maroubra. Well, that was only one day, was it? All in one day. From the Cape, from the Torres Strait to Melbourne to Canberra and then drive to Sydney. And then to, then to when I got it uh, all, that night, all, all in one day. How, how again, how, how were you feeling at that moment? How, were you terrified or, or yes, what's the feeling? Or are happy? I don't know what that would be like. Well, I was, of course, yeah, terrifying. It was the biggest thing in my life. And uh, I was deeply worried about uh, how it might go. You know, I was working, it sounds crazy, but, you know, I mean, 100 hours a week for, you know, for years, you know, while I was in, as the federal minister. You know, I took the view that, you know, you're in this um, privileged position to give to others, to shape the country in these important ways. So I gave it everything, but I didn't leave a lot left for myself um, and, and and not enough for my, my mother as I came to, to meet her. What did you write in your first letter to her? Do you remember what, what the substance of it yeah, was? Yeah, I did. I had an instinctive, intuitive feeling that I had to reach out to reassure her that I wasn't judging her, that I'd had a good life. And in saying that, I was also a bit torn because I thought, oh, what, what if she reads this and she then feels hurt that she missed out on so much? And, but I'd have to tell her I had a good life. I'm okay. And it's the truth. And it's the truth. Um, but, yeah, so that reassuring, I had to try and explain, you know, a little bit about my life, but my role as a minister was kept from her. She didn't know who I was. I didn't know anything <laughs> about her, and that's when it got really interesting. Podcast. Broadcast. Online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you wrote a letter. She wrote you a lovely letter back. It's very, very like stepping towards each other, just bit by bit by bit. She sent you a lovely photo of her. And you sent her two photos of you as a little boy. Tell me about these pictures. I will, Richard. I just remembered one important caveat I need to make about telling this story, and that is that this is my story, and I'm so privileged and but also so extremely unusual to the extent that I had such a successful reunion with my birth mother. And it doesn't here. always work so it well. It does not. And so I really want to reach out to others who, who haven't had that privileged outcome, that special outcome, because a lot of people have suffered deeply uh, on all sides of the equation in, in the adoption process. I was in Foster, actually in Tunkurry, at my mother's, uh, my mother Gwen's unit. She was in an um, aged person's complex around the corner with the early stages of dementia. And I just got my birth certificate uh, a couple of weeks before. So I'm writing to a woman that I don't know her name. I don't know where she lives. I don't know anything about her. 
and I'm sitting at the table. My daughter Jade made some paper, you know, as kids do, for this special letter I'm writing to my mother. I reach behind me in the family photograph albums and I, uh, as well as writing about my life, some of which did not get immediately revealed to my mother, I also enclosed some photographs. And one photograph was of me on my adopted grandma's veranda at 18 Lansdowne Street in Marylands. I never thought of her as my adopted grandma. She was my grandma um, with my mum. And And this was the house where you were taken after you were born, wasn't it? Indeed, yeah. It It was a place I frequented almost as my second home, the only address I really knew in Sydney uh, until my grandma died when I was 12. It was my, my second backyard. My auntie lived in the same street. I played in the street all the time. So I just sharing a bit of my life. I didn't know who I was writing to and where she was. And I enclosed this photograph with a caption on the back. And the, the, the awful, diabolical problem was that when my birth mother sees this photo, she is living 10 doors down from that house at number 38 Lansdowne Street in Marylands and had lived there since 1957. And my mother was had never had any other children. The adoption had really shaped her entire life in so many ways. She'd, you know, gone through extremely difficult periods in her life because of the adoption, the pain, the suffering that she went through, as most women, I believe, do. Um, But she gets this letter and this photograph and she runs screaming into the street. Um, the same street. Subsequently, told me she's still, you know, she was still there, living in the in the same street, Lansdowne Street, Maryland. Yeah, but 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 it was only later that I found out the impact of this letter. Um, you know, the chances of this happening in a massive city like Sydney, extending from the mountains to the coast, uh, you know, is is you know, this one, is completely coincidental. Was it completely coincidental? Completely coincidental. But, she was in the same street. Had she? Had she seen you playing in well, the street? Thank heavens, no, because I think that would have been that would have been it. That would have been too much. But she did know my my grandma, you know, and she did know my auntie and my uncle who lived in the same street. We both knew Miss Ezzy, as we used to call her, the Italian lady up the road. You know, I I know I knew that street like the back of my hand. My mother used to walk there on the way to catch a bus to work at Parramatta Council. When your when your when your birth mother got that, saw the address and, mm, and recognised mm, the house and mm, known that you you'd mm, been going there throughout mm, your childhood, mm, ten doors down from her house, mm, could she could she accept it was a coincidence or did she think it was? She she thought really. I learnt later, you, you know, as you would, you, you just. You, you couldn't take it in. How could you? How could how could life treat anyone so cruelly? She it thought a it was trick or a prank she, or something. She thought it was literally some current affairs crazy, you know, script. She, oh, she just no. couldn't. But it, Richard had got worse because the second photograph that I enclosed, and remember, I don't know who she is, where she is, anything about her, was of me on a Santa's lap. Um, in 1955, and I think it's still the case that when the kids get their photo taken, you know, with with Santa, you know, it's often they have a little photograph there with the year, a little name, the, the date in the photograph. And uh, my mother gets this photograph, with, and I, I knew it was taken in Parramatta 
where my um, mum used to go to, I think, to David Jones, and I just thought this would be a nice photo to share. But my mother, already having seen the earlier photo, then sees this second photo, and she thinks to herself, well, uh, I have a photo like that. I, ha- I have a photo like that. And she goes to her cabinet, and she finds a photo of her twin sister's son, Daryl, taken with the same Santa in the same year, and my mother, who worked at Parramatta City Council, was actually there when that photo was taken. So, I mean, I, I, I can't say any more. That's what happened. That's my story. And the chances of this are one in a billion. Um, That's but, making but, my head spin all that. Well, but for my mother, you know, it was just... And it was pure coincidence, you know. I was adopted through an entirely separate process... Um, my mother and her husband, Greg, just happened to buy some land um, in Lansdowne Street, Marylands. They built a house, you know, uh, long after I'd, you know, left as a baby, for, headed for foster. So was she, um, was she badly freaked out by that? Oh, then? N- n- your language is not nearly... Doesn't begin to describe doesn't it, Doesn't begin to describe it. She was distressed beyond measure. But, you know... <laughs> We just went on. We gradually then started the further process, exchanging detail, and she found out more. And you know, she found that I was a federal minister, and I, f- <laughs> I found I and I found out, and uh, I told this story against her myself. But I found her, you know, she was a liberal voter <laughs> in the federal seat of Reed, right, right. held by my then good friend Tommy Reed. She didn't want to cancel the meeting after she found. Uh, she listened uh, to talkback <laughs> radio programs that weren't always very kind to me. She hadn't, she hadn't rung up anyone saying, "Oh, that tickler's got no idea." <laughs> Didn't do hadn't like quite got right. to that extent, <laughs> but we simply agreed when we eventually did meet that we right. wouldn't talk about politics. So tell me how you how you arranged to meet face to face. The first thing that happened was that we we had to work through all this you know, with my mother, and she got tremendous help from Sandra in the department. I'll give her that name to protect her, in, you know, her, uh, her from. The public gaze, but that was just wonderful work done. You know, she was uh, emotionally nursed and supported, guided. You know, my mother was my mother was a woman of enormous strength to have survived all this. You know, please don't think that she was um, you know anything but a woman of great integrity, strength, and capacity. But she'd been hurt in her life, and she'd carried this burden. She'd had one conversation with her husband Greg. One. In, in the 37 or so years that they'd been married, one. She kept this a secret, as many, well, you know, I think probably overwhelmingly most women do. But she from, had told her husband that she had what, a child well, uh, yes. before she'd met him. One conversation, right. that's all she allowed in 37 mm. years. And so you can see the enormous journey that she had to go on to be ready to meet me. All those things unsaid, all those oh, things carried along, oh, carried around in oh, silence. Oh. So, so and, we, and and so the process continued until early January uh, of of uh, of nineteen ninety three, and then we met on the Opera House steps, which was a very wonderful and special place. First step on the bottom left hand side as you look at the Opera House. It's pretty dramatic. Yeah, well... <laughs> it is an opera house, I suppose. Well, so you know, do you remember I, seeing I, her come through the crowd? Do you remember yeah, seeing... Yeah, I do. Tiny speck. I had a little disposable camera and I managed to... I just saw this speck in the distance. I just knew it was her and I, I've talked about what it was like bounding down the steps. Yeah, what state were you in? Oh, 
I, I was about to go through the most momentous moment of my life, about to meet my birth mother. And, and you know, I, I was just, my heart was in my mouth, uh, you know, I was... I, I, you know, erratically at one stage, you know, feeling so powerful I could tow a bulldozer and the next minute feeling <laughs> vulnerable <laughs> like a small child. Were you teary at the time? Coming, oh, no. teary, of yeah. course. Who wouldn't mm. be, you know? But I was up at the top of the steps, saw her come, saw this person. She looked up. I said, it's me, it's me. Pounded my chest, came down the stairs, bounded down. There was a, uh, a, a Chinese visitor to Australia, a, a tourist there doing a whole lot of photographs. And, uh, she was wondering who this, you know. Gee, these Australians are a bit overwrought, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Bounding down the stairs. She thankfully got out of the way. <laughs> I reached my mother. We embraced and, you know, I held her. And, you know, that's the first time in 41 years she was with her son. So so that went spectacularly well in the end. And these things don't always work this way, as you say. But in this case, it, it, it certainly did. What did she tell you about the circumstances of your birth and and how she'd had to give you up? Well, we went into the Botanic Gardens and, uh, you know, we sat on a bench, sat on a bench where we could face the looking out from the bench facing the front so we didn't have to look at each other all the time you know give each other some little bit of moment of quiet time you know because you can imagine you know the the emotion of it all and and how much we had to to talk about and then we could turn inwards look at each other and um over the course of the conversation you know my mother was who talked very fast um, and I have a bit of that in me, but I also have some other slow-talking mannerisms, and that's another story. But she talked like, you know, machine gun, you know, like rapid fire, bang, 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 telling me all these names. She kept talking about Precious, and I thought Precious must have been her husband. It turned out later it was her cat, you know. <laughs> it took me a while to work it all out. But no, I, I must think, meet this Precious. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think one thing I learned pretty early in the conversation and established the ground rules I, I didn't want to know um, anything about that stage, my birth father, because, as you can tell from this story that I'm telling you, the enormous responsibility that I carried to look after my mother Maida, you know, like it was overwhelmingly omnipresent, enormous weight because she was so vulnerable. So I, you know, gradually made it clear, you know, that I wasn't interested in knowing anything about the history. I wanted to focus on her and building the relationship with her. And I had to give these messages, not just that day in the gardens, but for some years to come. So, so, so the first thing is to, you, you, as you saw it, was to get to know her, yeah. know about her life, and yes. then broach the story of your birth. Well, I didn't even have it in my head to talk about because I one step at a time. I, I I saw my absolute loyalty had to be to her. So, so what did she when she did tell you though? Did she explain to you? Well, let me go there. Um, I'll talk about my wonderful beloved birth father Len later. Let's go to that issue. Um, I'm amazed how many people I meet who were born in the eighties talk to me um, about this. They don't understand and ask me, why did your mother give you up? How did that happen? Why did that happen? 
And of course, you know, Joni Mitchell, the famous Canadian singer-songwriter, talked about what life was like in Canada in those years as it was in Australia. And Joni Mitchell said it was like when you had a child out of wedlock, it was like you murdered someone. The social stigma was so powerful. Single women were disparaged, even, you know, even treated with great contempt, including by many doctors and many hospitals, including in the Crown Street Hospital when I, where I was born. You know, she didn't have to go there because, you know, being essentially a teenager in the, in the 60s and, you know, I knew what it was like. It was still there then, you know, the same kind of stigma and prejudice. So, you know, I understood this at least that much and, and I really didn't want to drag her mind back to thinking about the circumstances of my, my adoption particularly at that early stage. It was a bit different later later on, and nor did I really make any effort at that stage to find out about my birth father. It was all about my mother and manifesting as well as gutturally feeling this devotion and love for her. So the culture at the time, she'd come from Orange, the the country town of Orange, and had come to Sydney to have the baby. Mm. The culture at the time, Mm. was it quite coercive? towards women like your mum and in, uh, I just it's best if you give the baby up for adoption rather than be a, a, a shameful single mother. Is oh, yes, it was. And, I, you know, I, I've written about exactly what it was like and many others have, have as well. And, of course, every state and territory government and the national government of parliament, and the parliaments, I should say, of all the government in, of all Australia, have issued apologies to the women. Yes, of course they were forced adoptions. Um, they varied in the treatment of the women. They varied in the degree of force and nature of force. But it was also, you know, families had responsibilities here too. And, you know, the, and sadly, the great majority of them went with the prevailing culture, you know, the shame. You know, daughters were, you know, whisked out of home, you know, Ugh. out the back door, sent to another city and re-emerged, you know, seven or eight months later uh, you know, having been on a holiday or whatever, the or whatever it is. Yeah. So, 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 so just stepping into her shoes yeah. for a moment, then. So this is this is something that had happened in the mid nineteen fifties, mm. early nineteen fifties, mm. and all this shame had been heaped on her mm. uh, by the hospital as well as yep. uh, the, the 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 people around her. She'd had a child taken from her, a child taken from her, and then that's something she's she's she'd carried for 40 years or so. Yep. And so that's when I suppose when she hears from, when, when you hear from that lost, or lost yeah. is the word son, that, that child, it's like a bomb going off in their lives, isn't it? Oh, more than that. And, and of course, you know, th- this is what I was alluding to before. This is my story, which turned out positively for many people, many relinquishing mothers, you know, for many adopted children, for, for, the da- for some of the dads and the we need to talk about meeting my birth father as well. Mm. But for the siblings, you know, there's probably conservatively half a million Australians been impacted by these processes, you know, a massive number of our fellow human beings in this country and overwhelmingly, you know, some 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 horrific stories. Um, my story is a, is a beautiful one. Um, but, you know, it took a lot to, to get my mum back to you know, the right frame of mind and, and meeting, you know, Jade and meeting my son Jack, you can imagine the gift that that was to her, 
not having me, a child in her life. And so I had my mother for, for 20 years until she passed away in 2012 and a beautiful relationship with my stepdad, Greg, um, who, who was so gracious and so welcoming to me into, into their lives. Whenever we kind of have these conversations, uh, like on, on this program, we often hear from people after saying, well, that's fine for that person, or that wasn't fine, but no two ways are the same, and, I'm, I'm, yeah. and that's no doubt true. It's that's true. That is true. And not a, and, and as you show with those photos, hmm. the, the pro- process can take these weird, weird right angles yeah. and go into all sorts of strange places. Hmm. But it does, I have to say, it does seem to me that one of the loveliest parts of this, or one of the, I suspect one of the reasons why it, it did work out so well for you in this case was because the, you, you were, I noticed in your letters you're really, really careful to give her all the power and all the time Absolutely. and all the room she needed Absolutely. to make contact with you. As hard as that must, that must have been. Absolutely. Without question. And that's why it works so importantly and that's the great advice of the department. But I had to go through the next step, of course, of... Uh, Meeting of, your birth father. Indeed, yeah. So um, you stalked him for a bit, didn't you? Well, you <laughs> There's know... There's only one way to put it, well, isn't there? I gave, a commitment, the name. I gave a commitment to my mother that I would wait till she was ready, and, and I did. I made a commitment that I wouldn't make contact with my father, and I wouldn't also... If I did ever meet him, I wouldn't tell him about her. So that's what I did, but I was a little bit naughty because I thought, what if he dies? Maybe I can just have a kind of peek where he where he lives. And so I went up to a place outside Sydney in the, in the north uh, towards Gosford and uh, I almost got sprung. I was doing an interview <laughs> with, with John Doyle and Sydney ABC uh, out the front of the house. And uh, What, on a mobile phone? Yeah, the one of the what, phone, like while a house you, brick. What, while you were scoping the house of your birth father? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's all, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but then, then, then you know, my, my, my wonderful stepmom, uh, you know, uh, Lola came uh, out the driveway and said, you know, who, who are you? Are you okay? And I'm, I had to scurry off, you know, but eventually... Sorry, I, sorry, the, the federal, min, a federal yeah, government minister yeah. is there on the phone going, oh, and you've got to, and you've got to slink away, yeah. like, right, yeah. <laughs> with, the, with the giant mobile phone going, nothing to see here, don't, yeah. and, and I suppose you don't want to see your face well, either, you? you know, I'm a human being, I wanted, you know... She I, didn't go, Robert Tickner, what are you doing here, did no, you? No, no, right. thank heavens, but I, you know, and I eventually did meet my wonderful father, Len, on, on Piedmont Bridge, and, and his... He's alive, um, he's 92, and he's the most wonderful, special person in my life. And uh, meeting my birth um, mother and then my birth father, um, you know, really brought out the whole nature-nurture complex, you know, concoction that makes us human and, and working out the relative place of all that. Well, I asked you it, before... It's just a huge story. I, I asked you before about um, being an only child. Hmm. You're not an only child. It turns not, out... You, not anymore. You, suddenly you had these kind of fully fully uh, conceived and created siblings. Yeah. Just so, suddenly. How many how many brothers and you know, sisters? Two, two, two wonderful sisters and two wonderful brothers who formed a how, huge part of my life. Now... Th- was that hard for them? I mean, because to, to know that this had all been going on, was it hard for them to accept you? And did they accept you? you know, of course they did. But I think, you know, it's a big thing, you know, to be told that you've got a brother, um, you know, and that your father, who you thought could never do what, you know, had a child, never. They couldn't have ever possibly even thought of that could have happened. And But, yes, and, and, you know, to them, you know, to my 
to my brothers and my sisters and my father and my stepmom, you know, the the amount of for, forgive, forgiveness, the amount of love, the amount of compassion, the amount of integrity that they brought to the table to allow me to publish this book is just phenomenal. But they did, and it's and it's all our story. It's it's a very uplifting human story. It turns out your family's as affectionate as you are, aren't they? Like, yes. there's, a big, there's a lot of hugging going on. And, well, yeah, you know. well, you know, my you know my dad is. Uh, yeah, my I can just see through running. You know, my my dad. Uh, I have this. Um, I don't know. I've got this compassion gene, as much as I might want to ever repress it. Um, and I think it's transmitted to my son Jack. So, nature, nurture. Hmm. It all helped make me what I am. You've included in your book something from Maida's diary, your birth mother's diary, from that contact period. I just want to read it out because it is really so lovely about how strange it was for her to discover that you're a federal government minister. Her yeah. birth son this is a special this is, a note. The last note I discovered in cleaning out her house, and this is, tells her personal recollection. Of, this is from the contact period. I just want to read this out, what sure. she wrote. At home that night, again studied the photos Robert had sent me. Suddenly looked up, and he was being interviewed on TV. Felt like being in a trance and thought... That man on TV and that man in the photos is supposed to be connected to me, but he is not. I do not know him. Suddenly became very distressed and agitated and realised it was because I had never touched him. My pain at that moment was almost unbearable. But later that night, I experienced such peace and calm. I had made my decision to accept this situation and to proceed forward. And then she concludes, my heart is full. Beautiful miracles do happen. And that's in big capital letters she wrote that. She did. So, after all that, that's, that's wild that you were going through all of this at that time. There's a whole lot more. There's a whole <laughs> lot more. Where have you landed, landed on this nature-nurture thing? I think where I've landed is that uh, both nature and nurture help shape us. I still very much believe that you know, that we need to set up the right environments for kids um, around the country, that education is so important, employment, you know, all the public investment in our communities, particularly communities doing it tough. No governments have ever addressed those postcodes of disadvantage that Tony Vincent used to, to write about. And uh, I've learnt that, you know, I grew up in a community that did have those things and a mum and dad that loved me uh, deeply and um, and with it I also got from my um, my birth parents the, those genes. I thank them all. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.